Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We need this win, you know. We got a lot of losses. To yeah, we got a lot of losses. That's what we're here for, guys, to win. Play heads up out there. I mean, let's be smart. Man for man, we're better than any f***ing club in the league. Let's just put our minds to it. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. So today, let's discuss the reporting process in greater detail. Lane recently did an AMA on Reddit and answered questions about The Girl in the Window, the story we've talked about here as well. And there were a lot of good questions, so we're going to recycle a few. First, we'll take questions from Julia Evelsizer, a reporter at the Pantograph in Bloomington, Illinois, who sent hers via email to rightlane at tampabay.com. Julia wonders, you have a talent for weaving detail into your pieces, and I'm curious how you're able to tap into such distinct memories and emotions from your sources. What's the best piece of interviewing advice you've received, especially for doing feature stories? Um, I think the, the biggest difference between reporting for news and reporting for feature stories for me is wanting to have a conversation instead of just elicit information. So, uh, one of the best uh, advices, pieces of advice I've gotten is go where the people are, go to their home, go to their office, go to their dog park, you know, wherever it is that your person you're interviewing is comfortable. And that gives you a context um, and a setting and a scene and also puts that person at ease. So if, if I'm doing an interview and it feels like I'm just pulling things out of people, I know it's not going well. If it feels like I'm having a wonderful conversation with a new friend, that's when I think, okay, I'm getting somewhere here. So um, don't even meet them at a Starbucks or something. Try to go somewhere that they, they're, they that's just comfortable for them. It puts them more at ease. favorite Starbucks, you know, or a favorite bar, I'll go to their coffee shop or their bar for sure, but I really want to get in their living room and then I want to get in their bedroom. Like, I want to be like <laughs> as intimate as I can with the people in the places where they're the most intimate. Um, and I don't usually, I, I'm always gathering like as much detail as I can, but I don't always know what it's going to mean until mm-hmm. I can step back from it sometimes um, and can see it after it's happened. And so, yeah, answer, Julie, like sort of the, about the memories and emotions. How do you how do you get people to tap into that? I guess making them comfortable is part of that, getting them to to just relax and trust you. Yeah, and kind of letting them drive the bus. I mean, when, when I was interviewing for information or covering city council or a murder trial or whatever, I could just pepper away with the questions I know I need to ask. But I usually let, if it's a, a subject um, or a, a profile, I let the person take charge of the interview early on. Like, what would you like people to know about you? Or doing that sort of that therapist question of like, I can't imagine how you would feel. And, and sort of giving them permission to know, I don't know what it's like to be in their shoes, to not pretend I have any idea of what it feels like to be them and hopefully let them take me there. That sounds good. Well, okay. Hope that answers Julia's questions. Um, Now from Reddit. Uh, 
one of the folks asked you this, which was I thought was an interesting question. Do you think reporting tragedies like the girl in the window, including the follow-up, which wasn't a happy ending for anyone as far as I can tell, make an appreciable difference in society? Do you feel like it raises awareness? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) That's the answer. A lot of my stories are so sad um, that I hope there's something to be gained from it, even if it's just the way somebody looks at their next door neighbor a little differently or or, or thinks something might be wrong that they didn't notice before, you know. But I I come away from most of them feeling how lucky I am, Um, and I hope some of the readers have that takeaway too. It's not that I want to... Um, exposed tragedy or sadness. It's somehow putting life in perspective or a different perspective for people. I, I think that's an important thing in journalism. Someone else asked you what the what the girl in the window, what the story taught you about reporting difficult enterprise stories? Um, well, it, it was really difficult because I couldn't talk to the main subject. You know, that was probably the hardest part for me was was having to rely um, so much more on observational reporting than mm-hmm. interviewing. I, like, I really want to get into my subjects, not just their head but their heart, and like, I couldn't do either one of them with Danny. So, um, sitting back and watching and just trying to talk to everybody who she came in contact with um, to get whatever insight I could. You know, it, that. That was a much harder process than when I can sit on your couch in your living room and ask you how you're doing. And that's hard, I think, for a lot of reporters. The watching, though, too, that breaking it down and sort of being a, you know, not trying to trying to report for what you see and then and trying to interpret what you're seeing sometimes, right? Because absolutely, like in this case with Danny, you had no idea really what what was going through her head, why she did what she did. All you could do is say, like. Okay, this is how she reacted. And no one did. I mean, yeah. it wasn't even someone. Sometimes you can ask someone who's close to that person, you mm-hmm. know, what's going on or what they're thinking or feeling, but nobody had a clue with her, so. Uh, another person asked you about navigating through narrative projects and feeling over overwhelmed and overloaded with notes and information. And uh, they said that you had mentioned using your notes, using only using your notes to fill in facts. Um, so the question was how you did that. Well, I use my notes ahead of time. Like, so what my process is, and I always overgather. I over-report. I report until my editor, until you, or my editor says, stop, start writing. You know, I, I never know when to stop reporting because I always feel like there's more to be gathered. So I have to have someone go, stop. <laughs> and, but then what I do is I, I go through all my notes. I read them. I usually sit on my bed and spread out all my notepads, and I read through every single thing I've taken notes on, and then I take notes on my notes. So each legal pad is going to become like one piece of paper. And that's as much to familiarize myself with the material again as it is to index it and get organized. But that way when I'm writing, I put all the notepads somewhere else, all my notes go in the kitchen or the car or somewhere, and I can sit at my desk with just those index of facts and tell a story without having to keep like flipping through pages and pages and pages. And then I go back at the end and fill in the blanks, fill in the facts. But I think, you know, it's really easy to procrastinate um, when you're trying to write. It's really easy to spend a lot of time buried in your notes, and that alleviates that a little bit. I think you can get too obsessed with them, too, and like get, take, take wrong turns sometimes because you get focused on... You know, you kind of lose sight of what the story is really about. Don't yeah. you think, like, you like when you get away from it, you sort of try to pull yourself away from your notebooks? And then I feel like I'm telling the story more than regurgitating notes or quotes. Right. You know, I also used to really heavily quote people, and that was a function of going through the notes, too. You have all these direct quotes that you think, oh, I should put it in just like they said it. But most of the time, you can write it better than they can say it. 
Has your uh, writing process changed over the years? Yes. Um, I, I try to do most of the thinking um, and the constructing of the lead before I sit down to write. Um, when I was, especially when I was covering news and I was writing two or three stories a day, there was no time to think about what I was going to do, which is like sit for the computer and cough it up. You know, now I, I walk around for a while. And I think it's now you it. think. Yeah. <laughs> I spend much more time thinking before I start writing. Yeah. Um, at some point in the Reddit conversation, there was some back and forth over uh, Lane's advice to reporters who were starting out. And I thought there were some great nuggets of wisdom there where Lane started a sort of a whole laundry list of things that she wishes she had done as a younger reporter. Um, and one of, the, one of the first things you said is you said you wished you hadn't thought you had to be so smart. What did you mean by that? When I started out as a general assignment reporter, I was covering things I had uh, most of the things, I had no idea how the court system worked. I had no idea how the zoning board worked. I had less than no idea how commercial shark fishing worked. And so I was being thrown into these situations with people who were experts on these things that I did not know what I was talking about. And instead of just going, dude, I don't know anything about shark fishing, I would try to bluff my way through and ask smart questions. And it's so much easier just to admit that you don't know and then people feel sorry for you and they want to explain it to you and you know you can help your readers a whole lot more I think by admitting uh, what you're confused about or, or what you don't get um, also the idea of like you know I had a lot of assignments I didn't give a darn about things I didn't want to write about um, learning how to find somebody who does care about it made all the difference in the world so I didn't want to go cover the yo-yo champion of North Carolina, but I found a guy who was second place last year, and by golly, he was very revved up to be the yo-yo champion this year. And, you know, it just helped to find a, a stakeholder who cared about the story. I think that's that was a big takeaway. So ignorance is a reporting technique. That's good. And then you go, okay, if I don't explain it, you know, the fifth grader on the corner is not going to understand it. So it, it gives you permission, I think, to dump things down a little bit. One of the stories that Lane mentioned uh, that she was dumb about was writing about hockey, um, because at one point years ago, she was assigned to do a profile of a hockey coach. So um, I, I uh, thanks to the wonderful researcher at our old paper, The Virginian Pilot, and a shout out to Jake and Hayes, uh, we dug up the story, and I, Lane's going to read a bit from that story. So this is, this is early Lane. This is Lane, circa 1999, uh, writing about a hockey coach, and hockey was not... You're asked, why, why is Lane writing about a hockey coach? It's because the guy was a really big personality, and nobody in sports was really uh, – I don't, the guys who covered him, I guess, felt too close to it. And so, like, we're throwing someone in, like Lane, who has absolutely, like, no hockey knowledge to speak of. I think the guys were scared of him. He had thrown a puck at one of the reporters or something. He was like – so I didn't know what I was getting into at all. It, by way of getting ready for this story, I think I watched one hockey game with my husband, and I watched uh, Slapshot. Yeah, yeah Slapshot. with the Paul Newman movie from the 70s because the character Paul Newman played was based on this hockey coach named John Brophy who was for um, like a double-A hockey team yeah. or something like that. So, so here's, here's a, uh, a snatch from Fire on Ice. Brophy doesn't analyze his success. He doesn't diagram plays or feed his players' philosophy. He has one goal, win games. He has one game plan, score goals. That's hockey. The sport can be ruthless. The coach can be, too. He whacked a puck into the back of a forward's head at practice just to get his attention. He headbutted a rival coach after a heated game. He threw a hacksaw blade into the stands at a fan. 
Just last week, he shoved a police officer and rudely gestured toward the crowd in Roanoke. Some say he also spit toward two children on a stairway. Brophy denies that. And he said Roanoke's fans started it, throwing beer and other objects at him. League officials suspended Brophy for six games for shoving and dating the fans. He won't be behind the bench tonight, but his team can still win him a place in the record books. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Law enforcement officials are working on a different brophy record. On Friday, the Commonwealth's attorney in Roanoke said he planned to charge the coach with two counts of assault and battery for the incident. It's the third time in 10 years he's been charged off the ice for incidents that got him fired up during the game. Hockey makes him mad. Anger inspires him. That type of intensity, game after game, road trip after road trip, year after year, would exhaust those people. It's an elixir for Brophy. It helps him win. Every year, his players wonder when the old man might mellow. How long can he keep it up? What scars has the sport left on his life? He coaches 74 games a year and logs 30,000 miles on buses. He counts telephone poles, sleeps sitting up, eats at roadside restaurants. He lives in hotels, crams his clothes into suitcases, bows long distance to tell his third wife and three dogs goodnight. He can still recount every play he made for the Charlotte Clippers 40 years ago, but he can't remember his five-year-old granddaughter's name. Sometimes hockey can leave you cold. So that's, hey, you, you haven't read that story in like, what, 20 years? But that's, so that you, you, you talked about how you then showed it to some of the sports writers, right? Because mm-hmm. you wanted them to kind of like, yeah, make sure. And the thing about being not really about hockey. And, oh, right, exactly. Man, so. <laughs> right. Which <laughs> crazy old man stories you do a lot. Do. So, yes. <laughs> All right. Some of your some of your other wisdoms. Um, I wish editor or some of the things that you wish go looking back. I wish editors had given me more leeway to say, OK, here's an idea. Now go out there and come back and tell me what you think the story is. So why? Because you felt like you got too locked in, like they were too much direction on the front end. I think a lot of times, especially when we were doing two or three stories a day, the editors had an idea of what the story was going to be before we even went out and reported it. And therefore, I wasn't always paying as much attention as I should have been to what else is the story. You know, what what other way is it to look at it or what other pieces of this matter that we didn't know about before I went out there. Mm-hmm. I wish I had pitched more stories I wanted to do instead of tackling assignments I didn't want to do. And some younger reporters are out there going, wait, is that an option? <laughs> like, but. I, I think that's, I mean, that's probably my biggest regret because I always, I, I mean, I, I have ideas kind of like hanging in. I always had stories I wanted to do, but I didn't feel like I could push back. And it's kind of that, that thing like, you know, when you get a bad writing prompt and you're in high school and the teacher's making you write to a certain prompt and you can figure out a way to turn the prompt around so it's something you want to do. I, I've done enough stories that I learned how to do that a little bit. So even if it wasn't an assignment that I was thrilled about, I could find something in it, you know, that I cared about or that I thought readers would care about. I wish I had done more stories I wanted to do in my own time instead of making excuses like the editors won't give me time. I think that's the re- re- 
the way I got my first job with you was I all, I had not written any feature stories at all. I was covering two or three news stories a day plus whatever trials or weather or <laughs> surfing contest was going on. And and so the feature stories that I had done, I did all most exclusively on the weekends or on my vacation time because I wasn't going to get time. I wasn't going to have – it wasn't possible with two reporters in a bureau to cut me loose for a week to do a story. So – I finally started, there were stories I cared about so much I didn't want to let go that I felt like, well, I'll just do it on my own time. And, and those are the ones I sent up as clips mostly to get my first narrative writing job. And I think people might be thinking and sort of in this, you know, it's not fair. No, that's not fair. You wish you had all the time in the world to do stories. And um, and of course, the, the business has shrunk a lot since back in the day. So we sound like old farts. But I mean, I think that even now I say that to people, I say that to young reporters. It's sort of like, you know, Go do it. Go do a story you care about if you don't have time within the week or whatever your schedule so that you make a name for yourself. You, you do the kind of story that you really want to do and somebody notices you and then that opens up other opportunities for you. So, yeah, I think you have to make your own luck sometimes. Yeah, and we, I mean, if you really got into this business to tell stories and you're not getting a chance to tell the type of stories you want yeah. to do, then it's a, a labor of love as much as anything. You know, what would I rather do on my vacation than tell a great story? Right. I wish I had taken more risks with my writing early on, let myself experiment with voice and dialogue, different structures and chronology, trusted myself more to just tell a story and not feel like my job was to share information. Yeah, I spent seven years in a bureau sharing information and <laughs> shagging quotes. And uh, early on, I think I tried to write writerly. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think that's still a big hang-up. My, my boys who were in college you know, or you're writing something that should sound like you're some kind of a scholar, and that's not how you find voice at all, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think when my editor and on the Outer Banks started taking my notebook from me and making me write a story without my notebook, that's when I started feeling like, okay, I, I, I have to tell a story, you know, I'm not going to inverted pyramid that five W's here and call it a day. Wait, he, he actually took the notebook away? Oh, he stick them in his bottom drawer of his desk and said, go write. <laughs> Yeah, which is great. Actually, that's a great technique for people to like do from time to time. Just don't, you know. It was terrifying. I thought it's going to judge my note taking. I think you looked at them. You need to look at these. He'll give it back to you later and fill it in. Um, Do you feel like you're you're still taking risks with your writing? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like all the things I thought you had to do to be writerly, like from. intricate physical description to tropes like similes and metaphors and I used to work really hard at those and now I just kind of don't do it because right. <laughs> I think this, the simplicity of the writing and, and the sentence structure is I, I feel like I'm going to a more simpler time instead of trying to be as yeah. involved um, flower yet. I feel like we don't take enough risks in our business in, in the way we approach stories sometimes. Everything's very a lot of it's perfunctory or it's it's just it feels rote instead of like just trying different forms, you know, letting the story dictate where it takes you. And maybe it takes you to all kinds of weird places or, you know, like what's what's the harm? Right. Well, and especially if you're covering news or a beat, I think it's really easy to go on autopilot. You know, I, I know how to write a formulaic story in my sleep. So right. It's, it's yeah, really it is. pushing yourself to go, what can I do differently with this? So what can we try differently? I wish I had read more short stories and fewer newspaper articles. 
I, I, I think that that's kind of what helped me learn how to, to write narratives was reading a bunch of short stories. Like novels help, but you can't do that in a newspaper, you know. Mm-hmm. But the length of a, you know, a Flannery O'Connor story or an Ernest Hemingway story or even a Jimmy Buffett short story, you know, four or five pages where you can get a whole world summarized and you care about the character and you wonder what's going to happen and you're immersed in a whole other setting and scene. And that's the best short stories do that. And that's what I want my stories to do. I wish I had attached myself to more senior writers I admired, asking more questions, gotten more advice. Did you not do that? I didn't really do that until I met Tom French, and he was so, shout out to Tom, he was so willing to help and not make me feel stupid for asking questions. I always felt like as a 20-something reporter, I shouldn't bother these important 40, 50-something-year-old reporters, but I am now a 50-something reporter, and I love being asked that and bothered, so it was a false... uh, it was a false premise on my part. Yeah, I think good writers and reporters like talking about their craft and helping. I wish I had done fewer phoners and gotten sunburned on more boats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially when you're covering two or three stories a day, it's easy just to sit at your desk and, and dial numbers, and, and you can't get anywhere near the flavor of a story in the newsroom as you can going out and doing it. Mm-hmm. Plus, I mean, I, I didn't realize how much people appreciate that. It's like I was covering commercial fishing, which I also didn't know anything about, and I'm kind of terrified of fish, and so it really was a weird beat for me, but the reporter before me, he had just gone to all the meetings of the Fisheries Commission, and he'd gone to all the biologists studying the reproductive cycles, and I was like, dude, put me on a boat, man, and, and the fishermen were like so happy that I wanted to come see what they did and what their world was like. They opened up and told me all kind of stuff that I've never gotten on the phone, you know. I didn't know you had issues with fish. See, I thought you were on the Outer Banks for so long. I thought, like, you know, fish just had to, you know. I wish I had known that it was okay to make mistakes, that no matter how brilliant or bad your story is, another paper will come out tomorrow. Did you feel like you just, because you, that, that, I guess that can cripple you, being, like, so worried about oh, yeah. anything happening. And, and, you know, when I started, it was before email and internet so fact checking was much more laborious than it is now that's know? true yeah um, so I was always sure I had screwed something up but you're talking about mistakes too in your approach maybe like okay. I, but that it wasn't like okay I, I just tried something different or maybe I tried this ending even though that other ending would have been the safer way to go yeah. right or lots of anecdotal leaves when there's a lot of other way to leave stories oh, yeah yeah you do get, I think as you get older, you have a little bit more freedom to just feel like, yeah, okay, ah, but that one didn't work that well. We'll come back <laughs> tomorrow. We'll do something better. Especially when you're doing daily, there's that feeling of like, if there's always another day. You know, we're working on a project for months or a year at a time. It's more intimidating because I'm yeah. like, oh, I got a lot more to lose. <laughs> One more Reddit question, and we'll finish up uh, this episode. This uh, person had asked you, uh, they were curious about your thoughts on the future of long-form journalism at daily newspapers. And do you, did you think it would survive, the shrinking budgets and everything we're up against? Um, I think there's a, more of a future than ever for long-form journalism. I'm not sure it's just in newspapers. I feel like there's a lot more um, websites devoted to it, a lot more uh, scholarly appreciation of it in academia. Um, magazines are subscriptions are up instead of down um, so I think there's an appetite for that kind of journalism and storytelling um, I feel really blessed to still work at a paper that believes in it um, and I can see how smaller papers might not have the resources or the ability to 
eludes a photographer or a reporter on the same story for six months at a time. Um, but I think the appetite in the audience is there, and it's it's so uh, gratifying to see a story that maybe would have a shelf life of a couple days before it now has continents to cover and years to bring back because, because of the way that they're caching on the internet now. So yeah. the appetite's definitely there. All right. On that happy note, we'll finish this podcast. If you have a question for Lane about any of her stories, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was performed and composed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.